this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. You know, fortunes are made or lost not by what happens to us, but by how we react. Bad things happen to good businesses. Now it's up to you how you want to respond. A lot of owners right now are cutting expenses to the bone, just trying to survive. Some are being paralyzed with fear. A rare few are taking the opportunity to reevaluate their business. Now that the shock has settled in and we are now in the process of restarting, It's really a unique opportunity to rethink what it is you want to create, how valuable a company you have, how much it runs without you, and what you might do now, maybe give it a little bit of extra time to structure it so that it can be something that lives without you and ultimately is a sellable asset. It's exactly what we do at Value Builder. You can check out some resources at valuebuilder.com. There you'll get a questionnaire, which will allow you to look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. We can also connect you directly with a certified value builder, a trained expert in the value of companies and someone who can be your sounding board as you think about rebuilding. It's all available at valuebuilder.com. You know, here at Built to Sell Radio, we're all about trying to maximize the value of your company. We're trying to give you the the tips and tricks to outmaneuver, outnegotiate the acquire, and make sure you come out on top. And every once in a while, I get put in my place and humbled a little bit by someone who has an alternative view. Someone who says, you know what, like squeezing every last dime out of an acquire is not necessarily what I'm into. In fact, what I want is a fair price for my business and I want to move on. And that's exactly what my next guest, David Amigo, discovered. He decided he didn't want to necessarily fight with an acquirer. He actually wanted to forge a relationship with a buyer and he enjoys that relationship to this day. Here to tell you how he did it is David Amigo. Dave Amigo, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about Carolina Country Homes. So I took a, I took a look at your website and it looks like they're modular homes that you can buy and, and kind of put on a plot of land. Describe them for me. Yes. So they're, they're factory built homes. Um, we, we actually started in October of 98 with mobile homes okay. and we graduated to modular homes. What's the difference? Um, mobile homes are built to the uh, federal HUD standards. Modular homes are typically built to your state code, which is typically here in North and South Carolina, the International uh, Residential Building Code. So when I see those trucks with like, like driving down the highway with a house on top, is that a modular home? Could be. Okay. Could be a mobile as well. It, okay. it could be either or. And who buys a modular home? What's the demographic? You know, it, it, it's really varied over the years. Um, it, it used to be that it was somebody who was looking for a less expensive home, but that's really changed. Hmm. Um, there's a certain demographic that's paying cash. Um, it's a lot of times a second home. Um, it's somebody who uh, understands the quality that goes into a modular home. If, if you think about it, right, you see these homes going down the road at, 70, 80, sometimes 90 miles an hour, (laughs) you know, uh, they got to be picked up by a crane, put on the foundation. They are well built. I mean, they are, they are really, uh, they're built to take some punishment. And um, so there are, there's a certain demographic that's What would a modular home cost? Like a three, like, I don't know, two bedroom, 1500 square foot home. Like give me a ballpark. Well, here, here's the challenge. I've been out of the business since uh, 2015. Okay. And so that's quite a lot of time with a lot of real estate appreciation. Sure. But I would tell you that the average home when I left the business, 2,000 square feet, um, ranch style, uh, two boxes. So it was two pieces put together, um, was probably about 170,000. 
Got now, it. And- that, that didn't include the property. Uh, probably didn't include some improvements such, such as well or septic. So that, that's just kind of a ballpark. And what was your business model? Were you selling directly to consumers or through construction guys or gals? What was yeah, the- definitely direct through consumers. So I, I like to tell the story that the modular home industry has two parents. Okay. One parent was brought up and was from the Northeast of the United States. The other parent was brought up in basically the South. Okay. So what has happened is for the, for the, the father, right. Who was brought up in the North, he was a a typical stick build home builder. Okay. So he would basically build homes, stick built, but the weather got bad. So he decided it's better off to go inside the factory and I can build every day um, in, in a weather-controlled environment. Okay, that's dad. Mom actually comes from the automotive industry. Mom, mom started out with you know, cars and that turned into RVs and RVs turned into mobile homes and mobile homes turned into modular homes. So the distribution really follows the genealogy, right? So in the Northeast, a lot of modular home uh, builders were really stick builders that realized there's a better way. I, I got problems with labor. I've never, heard, I've never heard that term, stick builders. Yeah, stick builders is somebody who just goes out on a lot. It's, it's traditional home building. Home building, okay. Right. So they, they go out a lot with a bunch of sticks and, and they bring their crews and they just start constructing the house on site. Um, but in the South, specifically the Southeast, what you found was a business model that was like an, an automobile dealership. So when I first started in, in 98, 99, um, we had a retail lot, right? Like a car lot where I had you know, five to seven models and you would come tour my lot and you would pick out the model you wanted. Now, we wouldn't necessarily sell you the one that was sitting on the lot. We would order one for you with your colors. Once in a while, we, we would sell those lot models. Very different than the automotive industry where they want to get rid of their models, right? A, a uh, 2019 uh, car is really depreciating in value in 2020. So you want to get rid of that model. You said something I wanted to just clarify, David. So when you say um, it's similar to the car dealership, were you buying the inventory from a modular home manufacturer? And since you were a dealer of these. That's correct. Got it. And how many manufacturers did you get supply from? Just one or were there there a variety? Uh, It it evolved over time. We mm-hmm. started with one, we moved to another one, and we were, we were still a, a one manufacturer um, dealership. And you would think, and, and this is one of the big mistakes I made in the industry, uh, you would think the loyalty would uh, really help you. It's actually exactly opposite. You, you had to have multiple manufacturers to do better for yourself. So Hmm. by the time I left, I had three. Hmm. Meaning you got better terms, better deals, better margins when... Yeah. You would think if you were somebody's number one client, that they would treat you like gold. And actually, it was exactly opposite. It was Hmm. was when you did less business with them, but they realized how much business you could do, that they would treat you better. What would you make off of a hundred and seventy thousand dollar home? Like, what's the margin here? Because you have uh, to buy it from someone. And yeah, great, great question. Um, margins are irrelevant in this business. You make a certain dollar amount uh, per house. So typically, um, at the end with modular homes, they're going to try to make twenty to thirty thousand dollars per house. And and I say margins are irrelevant. I'm, I'm going to give you two examples. Okay. I have two clients that come to me, right? First client comes to me and says, I have my property. I want to build this $100,000 home. I'm going to make $20,000 on it. I say, great, it's 20% margin. We'd all look at that and go, wow, that's fabulous. Great margins, way to go, right? 
Second person comes to me and says, I want to buy the same exact home for $100,000. I don't have any property. So I would like to buy this $50,000 piece of property to put the home on. Well, we would arrange for that to happen. I'd make the same $20,000, but I'd have to lay out the extra 50. So now your margin is 20 over 150, which is significantly less, right? And so we would say that deal is not worth as much, but the way the business works is you have a fixed cost and it's just about how many deals you can close in the month. And it doesn't really take any longer or your interest cost, because interest rates are so low, that the, the interest carry on that extra $50,000 is insignificant. Hmm. Got it. So you've got, you, you sort of make 20, 30 grand on a, on a sale-ish. Yes. And, and that's the, okay, got it. Got it. And how did you differentiate the business? I'm assuming there are other dealers of modular homes in the Carolinas, the Southeast. What made you guys unique? Yeah, that great question. And this was really our secret sauce. So as I was mentioning to you, the business model was very much like the car dealership model. Okay. And so you had a dealership like mine in every single town, maybe multiple dealerships in every single town across North and South Carolina. Everybody remembers the home recession of 07, 08, 09. Sure. What most people don't know is there was another housing recession prior to that in mobile homes, manufactured homes. And so I like to tell people I got into the business as the snow skier who's going downhill and there's an avalanche coming. Okay. <laughs> and we're just barely staying ahead of the avalanche. Every so often we're getting pelted with a snowball in the back of the head. Okay. So when I got into the business in uh, 98, I believe there was over 600 dealerships in the state of South Carolina. And I'll never forget this. Uh, and there's a long story of, of why that all happened. And it, it happened, happens to do with uh, financing of the homes. Um, mobile homes used to be financed just like cars, right? So they were chattel loans. And there was a company, Green Tree Financial, who employed a, an accounting gimmick called gain on sale accounting. And so what would happen is if you signed the contract, and let's say back in those days, it was probably somewhere between 10 and 20 years to buy the home, right? They were financing the home itself, just like you would finance a car, except the car is typically, you know, two to five years, right? They would sit down and calculate the dollar amount that they were going to make over the course of 20 years and they would book it in the quarter or the month that it was sold right and so what was happening is they loosened credit this is pre great recession days right this is before 08 or not yeah, yeah right okay so here's what's going on right everybody's paid on bonuses everybody at the banks paid on bonuses okay and and, and the joke is like if you have a pulse you get a loan and even some people who don't have pulses get loans, right? <laughs> right. And it, it's this really a terrible scam that was happening before I got into the business. So what happened was they were uh, going to dealerships like me and they were giving all this financing and everybody I can talk to got a loan. And so the manufacturer was getting backed up. So the manufacturer put pressure on the dealership, said, you got to open a second lot, okay? And we're going to give you this much inventory. And if you don't like it, we're cutting you off because we're 20 weeks, you know, back dated in our production. Mm -hmm. And so guess what? You're getting, you know, 30 houses, 10 of them are going to have green carpet. 10 of them are going to have blue carpet and 10 of them are going to have tan carpet. And you don't make any changes and you go rent that lot and you store them there. And so the cycle went on for, quite a bit, right? Because Green Tree Financial, they're showing these incredible results to Wall Street, right? Look at all this money we're making. Well, guess what? When you don't do your diligence on credit, eventually certain folks don't pay their bills because mm -hmm. they were never qualified to pay their bills. 
And then the cycle reversed. And I got in, unfortunately, I didn't know this. I just learned this, you know, as I went along. I got in as the cycle was coming, crashing down. And that's why I use the analogy of the, the snow scale. Right? So what, yep. go, go back to the point, though, that your secret sauce, what made you guys unique? So what happened was we came in. I started the business with a partner. It was not my idea. He was a mortgage broker. And he did loans, but he did real estate loans for mobile home. So they were tied with the land. And in the business, they call those land home packages. And so the financing was different. So we had two things that came across. People told us we could never survive doing land home packages because it, it cost too much money and, and the, the financing took too long. Right. Versus somebody would come in, literally you come into a dealership and you'd leave with a house. You'd leave with paperwork that says you own a house and a big loan. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't do chattel loans. I, I think in, in the history of my company, you know, I, I might've done three chattel. Forgive loans. me. I don't, I don't know what a chattel loan is. I, I just don't. That's not <clears> a chattel right. loan is basically a loan on real property such okay. as car. Right, a, a car loan is a chattel loan. Okay, there's an asset that underlines the yeah, a depreciating asset. <laughs> a depreciating asset. Okay, yeah. So uh, you're you're losing me a little bit on what made you guys special. So there are all these kind of uh, yep. giving away free money, <clears throat> yeah. who are so, who are pushing all the stuff, and so then we, you guys were doing it differently. Yeah, we come in, we're doing land home financing, and what happens is the industry starts imploding. Okay, so. Typically, you had mostly mom and pop dealerships, um, folks that probably weren't very well capitalized. And all of a sudden, their bank financing's cut off. They have all this extra inventory. Um, they can't make their payments. And, and now their clients can't get loans because the, the whole cycle reversed. So we come in there, we're doing uh, very specific land home financing. And we embraced technology. We were really big on getting our website up. And so think about this, right? This is the early 2000s, right? And in a car dealership model, right? It used to be when you, when you went to go buy a car, you would look at your local dealership, uh, maybe within 30 miles. Well, we had an attitude because we were doing modular homes and the overwhelming majority of the home is built in the factory, I'll go anywhere in North and South Carolina. I don't care if it's at the coast, in the mountains, you know, we just didn't care. And so the internet starts becoming popular, right? In, in the early 2000s, we're advertising, your local dealership is going away. So, and people start searching the web before they go shopping. Well, who do they find? They find us. And it made us probably one of the top two dealerships in all of North and South Carolina. How big did you get this company before you decided you wanted to sell it? Um, you know, it's funny. We, even though um, we were big, we kind of landed, we got to a point and plateaued very quickly. We were about a $10 million company. And um, I never set up a second location. I really, you know, we focused, we became a destination spot. And that's, that's one of the marketing tools, right? So the business model called for us to have this local, you know, place, retail business, where you would attract local people. Well, we really converted that into a destination shop. We worked in a, a very small town called Lancaster, South Carolina. And there's really not much in Lancaster, South Carolina that would attract folks to come two, three hours, but every weekend we'd have a minimum of five different parties. To this day, it still happens, that travel over two hours to come visit our How did you guys make it a destination? It, it, it was our use of technology. It was being on the I web. It so they weren't getting anything special in the way of an experience. It was just that you were owning the internet and yeah. they were searching and they're like, oh, we gotta go to Lens, whatever, very, to get the- Very much just to go back, so ten million in revenue is that if we're if the average house is is a hundred and let's say it's a hundred grand, so that's a hundred houses. Is that a yeah? Year we, we, our best year that I was there, we did seventy one houses. Seventy okay, 
Got it. Got it. And, and when you say you plateaued, what, what, do you, you, what do you mean by that? You, so you hit 10 million and then you kind of flatlined. Yeah. We were right in that eight to 10 million for almost the entire time I was there. And, and what was that like for you? What, what, have you been able to kind of diagnose why you plateaued? You know, oh, yeah. There, yeah, there are many reasons. And, and it, was, it was such a huge reason of why I got out of the business. So there were several factors. Okay? Number one, it is a heavily, heavily regulated industry. Okay? Nothing works without money. And even though in the end we started to get a lot more cash customers, the overwhelming majority of our buyers got loans. Think of what the mortgage market has done <laughs> and, and the restrictions and the rules and the regulations. And, you know, I, at some point, I forget, it was after the, the Great Recession, you know, they started coming out with these rules that if anything changes on, on the loan, you had to wait another, you know, three days. And it, and it was silly stuff like, hey, the homeowner's interest rate was quoted at, you know, four and a half and rates tick down so we can get them four and a quarter. Um, but now you got to wait an extra three days to close and get your money. And it was just a miserable stuff like that. It was miserable dealing in different counties. So because we traveled, um, we had to deal with every local government official. And some of them were very nice. Some of them were knowledgeable. Overwhelming majority were not very knowledgeable. Um, there was a joke when I went to get my contractor's license. Um, I did it in the state of North Carolina. At the time, I think the pass rate was 60%. And so I went to take the preparation class. And the gentleman who's teaching the class, he says, I just want everybody to know, you know, we have a high failure rate. You know, only 60% of you um, will be able to pass your tests. But don't worry, the other 40% of you will become building inspectors. <laughs> and, and he said it jokingly, but it was, it, we found that to be- There's a modicum of truth there. Yeah. So you, you plateaued in part because of the regulation and the regulatory environment was just becoming more difficult. It, it's not just regulation. It was also, we're buying from a factory, right? And what would happen is, say we would sign 10 deals in a month. We'd be like, great, we're going to have a good month. A, a break-even month was two and a half, three houses when I was there. And so the only way you really make more money is you just, you got to compress the number of houses you close and finish uh, in a month. And so we would ha have this month where we would think, hey, we got 10 houses we're going to close. We're going to have a fabulous month. Well, then all of a sudden the factory goes from getting you houses in a week to, oh, we're two months backlog. So then you can't even get them. Hmm. And, and there were all these factors or we would go to get a permit, you know, in Charleston County, South Carolina, one of the absolute worst counties to build homes in absolute such a, they have a, one of the highest uh, attorney per capita ratio. So <laughs> That's every, always a problem. <laughs> yeah. They're very litigious. They're very rule oriented. Um, there are rules for the rules for the rules. And so, and please understand, right. The way we get a plan in uh, North and South Carolina is there is a CAD engineer that draws the plan up. He sends it to a third-party engineer that's you know, certified by the state. They certify that the plan is proper. They then send it to the state, which is purely a rubber stamp, and it's this time factor. They got to put their stamp of approval on it. Then you go to your local county, and somebody like Charleston County, they might take two months to approve your plan. Right. And so you've got more. What was, the, was there, a, do, you, do you recall a straw that broke the camel's back, the, a day, a customer experience, something that triggered you to want to sell? No, I just, I, I never liked the business, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a super competitive guy and I just like to win. I, I, I don't really care what that winning is. I, I'll give you a good example. My wife, uh, who's wonderful and awesome, uh, surprised me for one of my birthdays. I don't remember if it was my 35th or 40. And, and we went out to Las Vegas and we would go in and we would put $20 in a machine and I'd win $5 on the first or second spin. 
And I'd look at her. I'm like, let's go. She's like, what? I said, we I won. won. <laughs> and and I, I just like winning. And winning to me is having satisfied customers, doing things right. Um, it wasn't, you know, I, obviously I, I like big bank accounts too. That, that's a form of winning. But it, 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 it doesn't have to be, right? And what I learned in this business is you just, you're always losing. You're never getting your houses on time. You're never satisfying your customers. You're always fighting with your subcontractors. You're fighting with, with the factory. Um, you're, you're, you got employee issues like everybody has. And um, I think I was just always beat down by it. And I just, it wasn't, there wasn't enough winning in it. It just, it was, um, it was surviving. And so it was, uh, it was one of those death by a million cuts kind of thing. Man, I th I'm sure a lot of people hearing this right now can, can relate given that we're recording this, you know, during a pandemic and, and the economic turmoil that, that, that is sort of triggered by all that. I'm sure a lot of people sort of feel the same way that you did during those, uh, those times. Yeah. So there was no specific triggering event, but what was the next step? Once you decided that you wanted to sell, did you, did you take it to market? Did you have someone in mind? Did you hire a broker? What was your... So what happened was, um, number one, you know, I started the business with, with a partner. Um, I was incredibly fortunate. Um, I got involved with EO. And EO really, organization, yeah. and really, really helped me. So the, the first big watershed moment was um, I realized that the person I had running the, the company as the general manager was not the right fit. And I was able to, to hire a gentleman who was so way overqualified for the position. He was uh, at the end of his career. His wife worked for a bank in Texas that at the time got bought out by Wachovia, which converted to Wells Fargo. And she was moving from Texas to Charlotte. And um, I had a, a contact in my EO forum group who was in staffing and they had kind of helped me in this process. And this is where we, we found my new general manager. His name's Guy, Guy Simpler, fabulous human being. Um, he really helped me learn a lot. Um, very shortly thereafter, he joined. I bought my partner out. And How did you value the company when you bought your partner out? Um, there really, he was uh, in need of money. And um, we kind of haggled. This literally lasted for about eight hours. <laughs> that, he called me. He said, hey, I need to get some money. I said, hey, I got a better idea. Why don't I just buy you out? And there, there really wasn't a... a traditional business valuation or anything like that. It was, it was more of, he needed some money and I negotiated with him and that's how we left it. And so that was a watershed moment. Um, Cause that he, he had interest in so many different things. He was a mortgage broker. Um, he wanted to start another dealership. I didn't want to do that. He did it behind my back. Um, he started a mortgage company. He, I mean, he's a, he really, uh, he's the kind of guy and he, he's a professional poker player and, um, and he was a super nice guy. I mean, he had a great personality, um, really liked him. Um, just our senses of values and how to run the business were just incredibly different. So it, it, it just wasn't going to last very long. Um, but he was the kind of guy that if you go to the casino and you see the person playing three hands at the blackjack table. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, you know, his personality. And, and I'm over there. I'm like, well, let's, let's just take care of this, you know? And so we, we bought him out and then we just realized like it, we got to the point, I, I knew I couldn't grow it any further. That business is impossible to grow. Even, even the gentleman, Mark, who bought the business for me, he had these ideas about possibly growing the business. And I, I think those have changed over time in the, in the five years that almost five years that he's owned the business. How did you, so you go back to hiring your general manager. Um, wh what was it that you were looking for in a general manager? Well, it was definitely somebody I can trust above and beyond all things. I wanted somebody who had experience running organizations 
Um, I wanted somebody who had real estate experience. Um, Guy's resume was unbelievable. First of all, he, he worked in the White House. Hmm. Um, he was a recruiter uh, back in the days, and he'd he tell you all kinds of crazy stories of uh, Nixon and Carter and Reagan. And it, it just um, really neat. Um, he understood business. He was a consultant for a very long time. Uh, and he had his real estate license back in Texas. And so he kind of fit the bill. You know, it's very interesting. So we, we did a typical search, right? I, I forget back in the day what the, the search engine was, but, you know, it, it wasn't Indeed. Indeed didn't exist back then, but it was, it was one of those. And, um, you know, we had a short list of five people. His resume was absolutely, you know, top of the list. Um, I did a phone interview with him. I had a, a very, very good friend of mine uh, who's a world-class sales consultant, Mike Weinberg, uh, who I've worked with, went to college with. Um, he interviewed him. Um, we all agreed that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. Um, I was a big believer in personality testing. Still am. Um, we did a bunch of personality tests. Uh, it was very interesting. We had five candidates. Then I had my old general manager who we were going to move into a different role. Um, there were two folks and, and what they told me about the personality testing, I believe it to be true. Um, it will not guarantee success, but it will guarantee failure. Right? Mm. So if somebody, Which personality test did you use? Um, we use, what was the name of it? Oh boy. It wasn't, it wasn't Myers-Briggs. It was the there's, one based there's on There's a Berkman. There's uh, uh, Colby. Um, oh, there's a few. I've, it, anyway, doesn't matter. I'm going to remember it. It's on the tip of my brain here, and, and I'll, uh, I'll remember it, but I'll, I'll get back to that. Anyway, we, we had you know the five candidates, and I had my old uh, general manager do it. and They told me, well, you have two people that are absolutely guaranteed to fail one of the candidates and my current general manager. So it kind of validated, you know, the move. And um, so Guy was, was coming to town with his wife to look for houses. And we met on a Saturday and, you know, we just planned to talk for about an hour and we literally talked for about eight hours. And this was in Charlotte at the offices of the staffing company I was using to help me. And he asked me about being open on weekends. And I said, well, we're open Saturdays. We're not open Sundays. And he said, why not? I said, well, we do live in the Bible Belt and we do want to respect church. He said, well, what about opening after, you know, church? I said, yeah, you know, I often thought I really want to do that. But my sales team, which were only two people, said it's a waste of time. And really what was going on is they didn't want to work it. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't that it was a waste of time. So he says, well, I'd really love to see your place. Can we go down there tomorrow? Which was a Sunday. I said, absolutely. And so once again, we planned, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half. And we were there for seven hours. And while we were there and I'm showing him the office and the models and our computer system. And we literally had like eight customers. <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, and why aren't you open on Sunday? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think it's really more a personnel issue than anything else. He goes, well, we'll fix that. That's and uh, yeah, it, it was great. So he really allowed me to look at the business and have some confidence of um, somebody to trust, somebody to get, because I was, I was really surrounded uh, by folks that I, I didn't have a lot of faith in. And I didn't feel comfortable. And, you know, I never, I never want to grind. I always used to call it a house of cards, right? The, the higher the house of cards gets, more likely it's going to fall. Sure. I said, I, I don't want to do that. Um, so um, we, you know, we reached that certain level. And after a while and surviving the Great Recession, you know, I, I was just burnt. And here I, I am. I'm, I meet Jay Offerdahl, who has this uh, – company viking mergers and acquisitions and it became so great an m a guy he sells companies is that yeah is that right? mm -hmm. he represent he represents sellers okay and and i guess it was started by his father and uh he joined the business and jay was in my forum in eo so every month i got to see him and uh great christian guy i mean just really stand up one of the um 
he's really one of the folks that I really look up to because he always remembers details about you. And he'll ask, you know, hey, you know, how's such and such doing? Or how did this issue go? I mean, it might be a month apart. He is incredibly thoughtful. And, and um, especially for a guy, you know, I'm, I'm that type A, you know. You don't throw all of us under the bus. Well, <laughs> a lot of us are. At least, I, hey, listen, I'll take the mantle for that. You know, I, I mean, I'm terrible. I mean, so what did Jay say about, about selling your company? What did he think it was worth? What did he like? Have? Well, that's the thing. Jay, Jay's business model, he's like, listen, we do business valuations for free. So he said, let's, let's kind of go through the process. And so I knew my company wasn't big enough, even back then, right? We weren't big enough where I can sell and retire. That wasn't going to happen. But what my plan was is I, I just really need a change, right? And so I want to get out of this. And I'm not a quitter. It's not, you know, it, essentially, I, I wound up working there 17 years. So even at this point, it was over a decade. Um, but I just realized I was burnt out on the business. And so my idea was what I need to do is I need to sell the business. I want to take a little bit of time off and it's going to take a little time. You don't just walk into another business um, and you got to have some money to buy another business. And so the, that was my three part plan, right? Sell the business, time off, go into, you know, another business. And so we, we did a business valuation and this was like 2011 ish, I think. So we made it through the recession but the books didn't look great. And Jay kind of counseled me on, all right, this is how we operate in this ballpark, right? You're going to get a, a multiple of owner's cash flow. It's going to include, you know, your, your salary, whatever benefits you get, your profits. You know, you could add back some of your uh, amortization, depreciation, interest expense. And, you know, let's think about it. Now, the one thing, one of the best moves I've ever made so when we um, started the business, we rented the space where we operated and we had an option to buy it. And I exercised that option the first year because I, I, I didn't want to buy it initially because I didn't know if the business would succeed. And so once I realized it was a good business and mind you, okay, so I came in, in our small little town, I told you some of these towns have more than one dealership. Um, we were the eighth dealership in town. There were seven other competitors there with us, uh, including some manufacturers that had retail outlets. Um, in our first full year, we did more business than the other seven combined. So I, wow. I had a lot of confidence that we were going to, you know, last. So I went out and I bought the property and I'm, I'm not a big debt person. And, you know, I, I figured, well, I can, you know, have cash sitting around at whatever it was back then, two, three percent, or I can pay my note down at seven percent. So I just kept paying my note down, paying my note down. And, and that's something that really carried us through the Great Recession was I owned my property free and clear, but had an equity line on the property. And so when all the banks stopped lending money, they still would lend you money on your property. And that's what I used for my operating cash back in the day. And it, it was, turned out to be really valuable. Okay, so I, I want to go back to, to, um, to your M&A professional, Jay. He's, and then we'll get into the, the, uh, how the real estate ownership played into the valuation as well. But, but Jay said that your business is probably worth a multiple. I think brokers and M&A professionals refer to this thing called SDE, seller's discretionary yeah. mm -hmm. earnings or income, which is basically yep. as you describe it. What kind of multiple did he think you might get on SDE? Uh, somewhere between two and four was the guess. Maybe two, one two, two, two to four times SDE. Yeah. And, and did that, I'm assuming he was proposing that you, you carve out the real estate and, and own that or sell that as a separate asset. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Got it. Got it. And is that what is that? So take, I don't mean to cut you off. Let's keep going in the story. So, so you have this valuation done that the, the yep. books aren't looking great. You've just come out of a yep. recession. What did you do next? Uh, put my nose to the grindstone. <laughs> I mean, we really just dug back in. 
Um, I don't know that we did a lot of special things. I mean, I was always trying to improve the business. Um, the one thing that I always had going for me is I'm not really good at anything. So I need good people around me. Um, I, some people look at that as a negative. I always looked at it as a positive, right? The, the business was not relying on me to sell the houses. The business was not relying on me to build the houses. Um, it was just relying on me to keep the finances and uh, keep things going. You know, the big joke, I still use it to this day, is my, uh, my official title was CEB. And everybody looks and says, CEB, I've heard of CEO, I've heard of CFO. What's CEB? I said, chief errand boy. <laughs> nice. And, and that's really the way I looked at myself. I, I try to be the grease to make everybody else's job go easier. And so I always had that at my company. That was a, that was a big asset, especially to sell, right? It wasn't, there was no risk of David walking away that the company would collapse because I did, you know, X, Y, or Z and nobody else can do X, Y, or Z, you know, it, Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the big joke is I signed the checks, right? right? That that was that was the thing that I, you know, was most important for. So fast forward us to you put your nose to the grindstone, and then presumably you then decided to take the business to market yes. when the financials were looking better. We did a valuation uh, back in it was probably thirteen, fourteen, somewhere in that range. Thirteen, okay. And, and what did that come out at? What, what, like, what, what was your reaction to the number that, uh, that, that James? Very doable. It was very doable. It was, you know, like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't where I was going to retire, but by my calculations, I could probably take a year off and have enough money to buy another business and try something else. Had the multiple of SDE changed or was it that yeah. your SDE had improved that yeah, much? Yeah, the, the SDE improved. I see. Okay. So you're, 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 you're more profitable but the multiple remains the same. Yep. What, what was the next step? Did, did you hire Jay or what? Yes. where did yeah. you go from there? I, I hired Jay and, and one of the things, so we're in forum together. So I know a lot about Jay's business. He knows a lot about my business and it's incredible of the similarities that the business brokerage has with the modular home world, right? In what there, way? There's um, long sale cycles. Um, you get no cash until the closing. <laughs> Uh, just a lot of things that, you know, we, we shared as a, as a forum together. And so I start asking questions somewhat as his client, but even more to know more about his business. I say, Jake, go through what, tell me about timing. You know, what do you see as typical timing? And what do you, what do you know about, you know, um, in this area, what makes this difficult? What makes this easy? He made a comment to me and I was, I was shocked at the time, right? Because I'm over here as a seller, right? And he told me, his quote was, buyers are a dime a dozen. He says, I have no issue getting buyers. He says, what I have a problem is finding good businesses to sell. Hmm. And you have a good business. And I looked at him, I said, so you're going to be able to do this? Because I'm thinking that there's a good chance the company's not going to sell and I'm going to be mm -hmm. stuck. He goes, oh, no, it, you don't worry about that. It, this is easy. And he, and he tells me, he said, once a quarter, I sell a business before I, the listing even goes up hmm. on my website and we advertise it in, in different areas. I said, really? He said, yeah. And I was just blown away by that. I, I, I thought I was going to have a terrible time. And so what happened was, he had some interest in his thing. He has many agents that work for his company and they do have a pool of people that are looking to buy a good business and uh, they'll reach out to that pool of people to give them like a sneak peek of it. And sure enough, he had a guy. Now, one of the complications in this business is you do, you did have to have a general contractor's license, which is not very easy to come by. So either you have to have it or you have to bring somebody in that has it or they had to swing a deal with me to stay on, which is not something I wanted to do. Um, and so we had a gentleman who was interested before it even went to market. And I'll never forget that the guy came, we, we met at Jay's place. We talked, he came, he did a, a visit at my sales center and 
he started asking me right before he left, he said, you know, I do have a partner that's going to help me financially. And I got to talk this over with my wife. He looked at me and he said, but it would make me, you know, really happy if you would agree that you and your wife would go out to dinner with me and my wife. If, if I feel like we can do this, I said, that's a done deal. Just, you know, give me the offer. (laughs) I'll be there for dinner. And, uh, that particular day, my wife came down to meet me for lunch and we're in the car and we're driving to the restaurant and Jay calls and I put him on the Bluetooth. So my wife's sitting right next to me and he said, David, you just sold your business. Oh, hold on a second. Back up. So he had given you an offer? He had not given me an offer yet. Okay. He had just left after he said that about why about, you know, going out to dinner with the wives. And, uh, so this is, I don't know, maybe 40 minutes later, my wife shows up and yeah, we're gonna yeah. go, to, go out to lunch. And I said, what's going on? He said, he's gonna go home, talk to his wife, but he's, he's coming in. And I think this was a Thursday. So I think he said he's coming either Friday or Monday and he's going to do one last look and he's going to write the offer up. But he said, it sounds like it's a done deal. I was like, great. And then, so I'm ecstatic. I mean, hasn't gone to market yet. We had this guy. It's awesome. And uh, Friday came by. He didn't show up. Monday came by. He didn't show up. Tuesday or Wednesday came and he said, uh, Jay called me. He said, David, I, I apologize, but uh, he's backing out. I'm like, okay. Didn't bother me that much because it was, you know, we hadn't even gone to market yet. But it was a little bit of a disappointment. And, um, and then we, we had it on the market for many months. Um, still wasn't a great time, you know, 14, 15, it was, it was 15 at this point, 15 still wasn't a great time for home building. People really didn't, especially modular home building. Um, there's still some perception out there about, you know, the business and the industry. And, um, Jay held an event at our local baseball stadium. We, we have a minor league baseball team in, in Charlotte. And a few years ago, they built a gorgeous brand new stadium uh, in up, what we call Uptown Charlotte, which is downtown Charlotte. Um, and Jay had an event where he uh, brought in a few of his clients, a few of his past clients and a bunch of his agents. And there was a, a, a gentleman there that <clears throat> Jay was bringing on as an agent. And, uh, I met him. We started talking, and uh, and I'm a baseball guy. I like baseball. I played baseball growing up. I think I watched maybe three or four total pitches that whole game. I talked to this guy the entire time. He said, "You know, I I got a a friend of mine that I worked at at Driven Brands, which is the parent company for Meineke and Mako, and he was the CIO. He ran the." Um, the franchise development group, and he ran the in-house store group. So he moved around as an executive and he was consulting. He said he's, he's actually from England and he's overseas right now, but he would be perfect for your business. And when he gets back, I'm going to talk to him. And that was Mark Street and that's who bought my business. Take it from there. So what was Mark's first reaction to the the business what did he say he he's incredibly intelligent he he just kept um in a very good way peppering me with questions about the industry how does this work how does that work what do you do for this what do you do for that and he understood the business model immediately immediately he understood it um and he was very excited by it and was there a concern in your mind as you're talking to Mark that the more you revealed, the weaker your negotiation position would be? No, no, it, we had the, we had it priced so cheaply at that point. So one of the things we didn't discuss is, so we went to market at a certain price and during that hiatus of really not getting any interest, Jay had asked me to drop the price of, of the business. It wasn't by a lot, but it, 
It was a, ask what you listed it for and what, what he asked you to. I probably can't tell you all that because I don't want to divulge Mark's confidentiality. Maybe just on a, per, a percentage, percentage basis. basis. Like, uh, we probably dropped it. I don't know, fifteen percent. Okay. 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 So, so at this point, you're feeling like it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty low price. So you're not yeah. worried about telling Mark as much. And, and honestly, there was never any negotiation about price. Mark saw the value in it. I knew the value in it. You know, I I priced it to sell. I was ready to sell, and he understood that. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the one thing that I look back um, and it was all the difference in the world is um, the relationship that me and Mark have. He is just a super, super great guy. And I think that we went through the process together and we understood that obviously we, all, we have our both our selfish needs out of this. But if I did everything possible to look out for the benefit of Mark, and he looked out for the benefit of me, that this was going to be a really fun ride and a good deal for both of us. And I, I, I think it has been. And I, I took that attitude. I mean, we had a few things, I, I guess, in every deal, there are just things you just can't think of every scenario. You just can't. There, there's so many things that can crop up and come up. What happened in yours? I'm, I'm trying, they weren't major things. I'm, there might've been an expense that we were going to incur. And, you know, Mark and I would look at each other and be like, all right, you want to split it? Okay. I mean, that, that was, that was literally the length of our negotiations with these little extra things that would come up. And, Got it. and, and how did he structure his deal? Like what was the, was it a hundred percent cash at closing? Or did he structure it with some financing? What was the structure? No financing. Yes. Yeah. So, um, several things. So first, and, and you had two parts to it, right? You had, it was an asset sale um, of the company assets, which was one company that I owned. And then there was the real estate sale from another company that I, that I owned. And, and Mark structured it similarly, right? He, he set up two companies. Um, Mark actually used retirement funds and he used SBA lending. And so I'm not privy to all the extra details he had to go through of using the retirement funds, um, but it was an SBA note. It was a 10-year note on his part. Um, he might have refinanced by now. I, I, we had a conversation. I just don't recall what he told me about it. Um, but, he, you know, typically SBA, you got to come uh, with 25% down. And then you can finance the rest. Um, and so uh, that's basically what he did. And did, did you have to, to finance some of it as well? No. Well, here's what happened. So very, very difficult business. And it's almost, I basically wrote the offer because I think I was the only one who understood the business well enough to make that happen. So the problem in this business is you have this incredibly long sales cycle, okay? And there's a time period that it takes to close a deal, right? And so the way the deal had to be structured was we had to list the clients that we were working on and categorize them. And so there were certain clients that <clears throat> I started and I was gonna finish and they were all going to close before the deal to transfer ownership to Mark was going to happen. So that was category one. There was category two of clients that I was going to start. And then they'll finish probably when Mark takes over, which meant, you know, he'd have to help get those deals done. I might still have paid for some of the, the bills and I was going to keep the revenue. Then there were deals that I was going to work on for Mark and he would reimburse me the expenses and I was going to turn those over to him so he would benefit from having revenue when he started. And I guaranteed him a certain revenue in the first, I think it was two months. Mm -hmm. you know, he would guarantee to have these closed. And if something were to happen where they didn't close in that time, I would lend him the money until they closed and 
and that's how we worked it. But it, it was pretty sophisticated in, in how we had to isolate each individual deal and decide what would happen. Um, one of the things looking back are there were deals that really should have closed under my jurisdiction that got dragged out for months. Part of why I left the business, right? I just couldn't get things closed fast enough. And in, in hindsight, I, I probably should have been more aware, but I was always the optimist in this business. And I was always beat down by it because my optimism very rarely came true. What, uh, what commitments did you make either legally or morally to Mark to help him with the transition? Did you agree to stay on for a period or what was that? Yeah. Like? So legally, I think it was 30 days. I was supposed to be there and then, and I did. And then, um, I started coming in once a week to pay my bills. Right. So I still had my deals that were going on. Mm-hmm. He would keep a separate folder and I would pay my bills and I would help him with whatever questions he had. And then Mark felt it would, was better, and he was right, right, that I, I stopped showing up at the office. So then Mark and I would meet for breakfast once a week, and we did that for months at a time. And, and to this day, we don't meet every week. We meet once every few months, but we go have breakfast. And uh, he totally does not need me. He's, he's perfectly capable without me. Um, and so we, we talk about, you know, we do talk about the business, but we'll talk about other things as well. It sounds fascinating. I mean, what a, what a story. If you had it to do over again, all the way back to the, even really, even after the, the, the first valuation where you saw the number wasn't what you, what you needed, um, would you do anything differently? And again, I, a lot of EO members will be listening to this where they're looking for you know, tips and tricks, negotiation secrets, things they might sort of, sort of moves they might play to, to make the process more favorable. What, is there anything that you might do differently with hindsight being 2020? So this is really further hindsight. This is actually something that I picked up over the last six months. Um, there's another EO member, uh, Greg Crabtree, who's an accountant. Um, I think he's out of Birmingham. Uh, but I think he was in the Atlanta chapter of EO. Um, and he's developed what he calls, and he's got a book called Simple Numbers. And uh, I've just adopted that in my new company. And that probably would have been a, a game changer for me, keeping track of, of things uh, in Carolina country homes. And... Um, you know, from a negotiation standpoint, I, I think using the simple numbers, I, I probably would have been able to, to drive more value uh, because I would have been focused more on, on some other numbers that would have helped me drive that value. Um, that's the one thing I look back now. What actually transpired with Mark, um, you know, if you can guarantee what you can't to have a personality sitting across the desk like Mark, um, that would be the number one thing. And, and maybe that's something people can look at, right? Um, spend as much time evaluating the personality that you're working with. Now, some people might not care, right? It might be a, a, a dollars and cents thing for them. Um, for me, it really made the process fun, enjoyable. Um, this business was my baby. And so I love the fact of talking about it and relaying to somebody who was incredibly bright of my struggles and problems and, and success stories with it. Um, it really, it, it allowed me to, um, I enjoyed the process of selling the business more than I had sold the, the business itself. Right. And, and I said this comment to Mark. I really did. I said, Mark, I would love to work with you again, just not in that business. <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's a key. I mean, I, I think you can make your process incredibly rewarding and fun, or you can make yourself absolutely miserable. You, you, I mean, there's no question in, in my mind that um, this could be a miserable process for somebody. Um, 
I've, I've talked, I have a, a new EO friend. He just joined EO and uh, his relationship with the person he bought the business from was, is not great. And it, it causes a lot of pain and heartache. And um, you know, to this day, um, I have not missed a Christmas party. Mark has invited me to every <laughs> Christmas party and I, I go to every single one and I, I love seeing the people. Um, they're like family to me. Um, and I'm very proud uh, of what Mark has done. And he's, he's, frankly, I think he's done a better job than I have. And, uh, and I'm thrilled for him. I'm absolutely thrilled for him. Well said, indeed. Did you buy yourself a trophy? Any sort of, uh, any sort of recognition for uh, a job well done? So one of the biggest things for me is you know, I'm married uh, 20 years, coming up on, on 21 years now. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I have three children. One just turned 20. Um, 20, uh, soon to be 19 and a 17-year-old. And it's uh, my two sons are, the, are older and then my daughter's the quote-unquote baby. Um, I, I wanted to um, spend more time with them. I, I've always had a, a really good balance of being home and doing things, but it was always um, preoccupied time, right? So I'd always, you know, throw a football with the kids, but I had a phone in my ear, you know, talking to a subcontractor or whatever. So I wanted to have some undistracted time. And so my, my oldest child, he's a, a big sports fanatic as I'm I. And so we made this trip to New York. I'm, I'm originally from New York. I don't know if anybody's picked up on that accent yet. I hide it pretty well being in the South and my, my wife's from the South. Um, and so we, we had this incredible weekend uh, where we're big Tar Heel basketball fans and they were playing up in Barclays. Uh, this was probably 16, I think it was. No, 15. Must have been 15. Um, and so um, they, were, they were playing in Barclays. We went to see them. Uh, we then went to the Panther uh, Giant game, which is the game where Odell Beckham and, and Josh Norman were fighting with each other. And the Giants were uh, getting killed and came all the way back, tied it, and the Panthers won. And we're in Panthers jerseys. Even though I'm from New York, I'm not a Giants fan, and I'm wearing my Panthers jersey. And then the biggest coup is we left the Panthers giant game and went to Madison square garden to go watch the Rangers. Wow. And, and we had a friend, anybody who knows New York, right? You, you know how crazy and busy it is and getting in and out. So there's a, a steakhouse in Madison square garden. And we had a friend who did not come to the football game, but was going to the hockey game. He went to the steakhouse, got us a table, ordered food. We literally got off the train station, walked upstairs into the restaurant, sat down, ate food, went up a back door <laughs> into Madison Square Garden, watched the Rangers game. So Sounds was, like the sports fans fantasy. Oh, uh... it, it was awesome. It was aw We had a great time. And then my, my younger son is a big uh, musician, and his class was going down to Orlando Universal to play um, at Universal Studios. And so I was able to go with him and chaperone and spend the time with him. So that was wonderful. And then my daughter also wanted to go back to New York in the spring. And we caught the Mets opening day and, and a Rangers game. And then we also went to see, I think we went to see Wicked and a bunch of ice. I, one of my friends has a daughter close to her age and they find these, you know, cool ice cream places to go to or cake shops. And so we had a blast. So we did all that. And then what we had is a huge family trip. And I have one nephew who is uh, two years older than my oldest son, but there, he's, like, he's almost like the oldest son. He spends a lot of time with us. And so we all got in our minivan and we, we drove up to Hershey, Pennsylvania and spent a few nights and went to the park. And then we went to Albany, New York is where I went to school. And I, I have a relative and, and some friends still there. And we did that. And then we went uh, to uh, Boston, spent, spent a night over in Boston, did some touring. And then we came to this uh, little remote part of Maine. It's about an hour uh, northeast of Portland. And it was on the coast. My wife found this house that is surrounded by water on two sides. And 
Next to the house is a lobster restaurant that the gentleman who owns the house also owns the restaurant. And we saw somewhere online that he would let the kids work at the lobster restaurant. This is, mind you, this is back in, in 2015, I guess, 16. And so, you know, they're 15, 14, and 13. And we spent two weeks in Maine, and we just loved it. It, it, is, it is absolutely God's beauty. I mean, we are on these uh, fingers that jet out off the, the mainland, and there's water everywhere, and, and it's a big uh, lobster fishing place, but a lot of uh, the local economy is lobster fishermen. And, and they're some of the hardest working folks you can ever come across. And uh, we, we just, everybody loved it. My kids are very different. And so we came back the following summer and we started looking around for property because my wife and I had this crazy idea, like maybe someday we're going to retire and we want to have a summer place. And uh, my wife looked at me and she said, you know, you don't want to buy a house. I know you, you want to build a house. And I looked at her, I said, you know, you're right. I, I, I do want to do that. And so we, it was one of these HGTV episodes. I mean, we went in, we looked at three properties, we found one, we loved it, we bought it, started coming up with plans and a very good friend of mine, he actually designed our house in South Carolina. Uh, I asked him if he wanted to do it again and he said, yeah. And so we, we designed this house where it's a, a two phase build. And last year we completed phase one, which was basically, it's a garage, which I'm sitting in right now, uh, which is more of a man cave. It's very finished out. This is where my kids sleep. There's a 75 inch TV screen on the wall. It's great. And then there's an apartment upstairs with a full kitchen bedroom. We have two full baths and we also have a laundry room and, and the entrance way. Um, and I got to ask, is it a modular home? It is not. <laughs> it, it actually, it actually that is damn not. industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, we thought about it. We actually considered it, but for the design we wanted, and this is a very um, hilly, rocky part of the country. Yeah. And uh, the logistics of being able to get a modular in here, we could barely, listen, we could barely get the lumber in here. Yeah. That is crazy. So we weren't going to be able to get the modular. So selling this business, it wasn't all that bad because you bought yourself an oceanfront home in Maine and took all three kids on yes. trips of a lifetime. So I, I think it's just a great story and um, I appreciate you sharing it with us. Where can people get in touch if they wanted to reach out to you directly? Is, do you have a website you want to point people to or do you, do you accept LinkedIn requests or what's the best way to so say hi? I, I am terrible. Uh, my 16-year-old daughter likes to tell me how old I am, and I'm, I'm really not that old, but I, I am uh, anti-social media. However, they can, feel free. Anybody can email me. Um, my email address is david.amigo, A-M-I-G-O, and it's, it's at my new company. It's G-A-N-D-G landscape.net. Awesome. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. David, it was great to meet you. Thank you. And congratulations again. Thank you very much. Pleasure being with you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.